0: You're listening to The Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Cathay Pacific.
1: A co-worker recently got back from a once-in-a-lifetime kind of trip to Japan. For her honeymoon, she started off in Tokyo and then did a tour nearly around the country, covering some impressive ground. The longest leg of their trip was, of course, Los Angeles to Tokyo. But they flew Cathay Pacific and said it was pretty amazing. If you haven't traveled with Cathay Pacific before, they're an international airline based out of Hong Kong. Every week, they have about 100 flights going to Hong Kong and even more to Asia from the US and Canada. One thing that's cool about Cathay Pacific is that they have one of the youngest airline fleets and they continue to invest in new planes. The surprise of walking onto a newer airplane when you're boarding for a long haul is one of life's small pleasures. And if you happen to be flying out of Washington DC or Seattle this spring, Spoiler alert, they'll have Cathay Pacific's brand new Airbus A350 planes. Cathay Pacific is running a deal for Goop podcast listeners now, where you can get 5% off flights from the U.S. to Hong Kong and Asia. Book between January 31st and May 31st to travel this year. It can be an economy, premium economy, or business class. Just head to cathaypacific.com U.S. and use promo code GOOP2019.
0: Hi again. Thanks for joining us. If this is your first time, here's what you can expect. Every Thursday and a bunch of Tuesdays coming up, Goop editors will be sitting down with thought leaders who are pushing boundaries in their fields. We'll talk to doctors, creatives, CEOs, and relationship experts. You'll hear me interviewing some of the people I admire most in this world, and you'll also hear a lot from my chief content officer at Goop, Elise Lunin. I love listening to Elise's interviews because she asks the smartest questions and really just listens. In this episode, Elise is talking with financial expert Farnoosh Tarabi. Farnoosh knows a thing or two about money. At the age of 22, Farnoosh was $30,000 in debt. Today, she hosts a podcast called So Money and is the author of books like When She Makes More, Psych Yourself Rich, and You're So Money. If you've ever felt insecure about your finances for any reason or struggled with your relationship to money, I think you're going to find something valuable in Elise's chat with Farnoush.
2: I feel like we're selling young women a false bill of goods. We're, and this, I, felt, I felt like I was handed a false bill of goods. Like, go out there and get your education. Get a master's. Ask for the raise. Make more. Get the promotion. But make sure you marry somebody who doesn't make more than you.
0: Okay, time for Elise and Farnoosh.
2: Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Elise.
1: You're an unlikely financial columnist in the sense that you've been doing this since your 20s. (laughs) Why?
2: Well, two reasons, I think. I I get asked, you know, what brought you to the world of personal finance? I don't think anyone grows up going like, I can't wait to be a financial nerd. You know, it's not necessarily the dreams of young girls growing up in Worcester, Massachusetts as I did, but... I think two things really were my tailwinds. So, one was growing up in a Middle Eastern family where money was not taboo, and everywhere else, you know, dinner time conversation was about everything but money. And my parents were very chatty about money, what things cost, how much the neighbors paid for their homes. And then they would also bring in the kids into those conversations. I remember lots of conversations around my father's potential layoff at work and what the implications would be for us as a family. I often heard things like, we can't afford this because we have to be careful because your dad might get laid off, or I'm not working now, my mom would say, so we need to be a little more conservative. And so I early on learned the ramifications of having money and not having money. And we also, you know, we grew up, my parents, I was born in 1980 and at the time my dad was a graduate school student making a very small stipend my mom didn't work we had nothing they were immigrants came here with you know two suitcases and basically like hope that things would work out and I grew up in that in that environment and I think that was also eye-opening and gave me the courage to then you know as now an adult like have to have that background is very powerful because you know where you came from, and you know how also your parents worked their way up and then you know, my mom was nineteen when she had me, so we were almost like she 's like an older sister to me, so we were she was very transparent about a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes with me, so I appreciated that, maybe not so much growing up, but now I do, and I think that gave me a real maturity around money and what it means to have it and how to use it to your benefit and how to really respect money. And my parents now are, you know, they've achieved the American dream and I kind of grew up with them in that process. So to see that with eyes wide open was really powerful. And then, so my, so I all this to say, I, I think I grew up with an inherent interest in money because of just the way I was raised and also a fluency around what money is and what money can do for you. And then I think I got to an age everybody gets to where they think about, what do you want to be you know what do you want to major in in college and I didn't really know but I think I always wanted to be somebody who was helpful and I loved to write I loved to communicate I loved theater I loved something in that world I knew I had to be in doing I had to be a doer and a sayer and sharing information so i uh, I always loved journalism and Although I majored in finance in college because my father was like, you must major in something that gives you a return on your investment. (laughs) Uh, I I learned within about four or five semesters that I didn't want to be someone creating Excel spreadsheets for a bank or doing, you know, actually managing people's money. But I really, again, loved the storytelling behind how businesses were created, how people got out of debt, and then kind of went back to my initial childhood. Dreams of becoming a journalist mm-hmm. and enrolled in journalism school, and, and then kind of parlayed. So I had the finance background, and I thought, what's the quickest, fastest way for me to get a job in journalism? Hmm. Well, I have a background in business. So at the time, there weren't a lot of those jobs, or if they were, like, young 22 year old women weren't dying for them. And I would apply. I remember my first internship at Money Magazine, the HR woman called and she was like, Are you sure you want to work here? So what it was, it was this internship program where you could pick three of your top favorite magazines at Time Inc. and they would place you if you qualified. And so, you know, Time Inc. Well, now Meredith, it's like, People Magazine, InStyle, Entertainment Weekly, Time Magazine. And I was like, money, fortune, and fortune small business. And she called me and she was like, you know that we have other more exciting (laughs) magazines. You're 21 years old. What are you doing with your life? And I said, no, I know exactly what I'm doing because I'm playing the odds. And I got that internship and, and here we are. Amazing. So
1: growing up like that, my background is similar in that my parents both grew up very poor. My dad's a doctor, but they will never have enough. They just, in terms of their feelings of security, they operate, they still live just way, way below their means, which I, I I, think is remarkable and I respect it, but I'm also like, fine, if you don't want to fly first, like I'm happy to do it for you. But I similarly feel like I, there was fear in my childhood and my mom would sort of, Bounce from, like, we can't afford coffee to living larger than that. And I don't think that there was ever any real imminent threat. It's just, like, there's how they were brought up. Right. So how do you feel like that, like, fear of your father's layoff or yeah. insecurity, like, how has that shaped, like, your relationship with money?
2: I think it's gifted me a real practicality around managing money. So I like nice things. I, I treat myself... I live in New York City. How could I not? You know, it's like you live somewhere else if you're not into spending money. So my husband and I live here. We have two kids. We live in Brooklyn and life's expensive. But I think based on my upbringing and having experienced some of these real threats, it's forced, it's it's made me who I am financially in that I'm, I'm really thoughtful about how I spend and I always take care of the boring stuff first. Mm. I always say first, I invest first, I pay my insurance bills, I pay my credit card bill. Like I do all the stuff that I, that you, you should do. It's sort of the foundational stuff. And then I don't feel guilty about the, the excess that's left to spend that on stuff that will make us happy. Even if it's just for a day, mm-hmm. you know, I know money doesn't buy happiness, but I think, uh, it's, it feels good for, you know, a little bit of time to go out and have a nice dinner. And certainly they've been they've proven that experiences can definitely increase happiness. So that's what I always try to remind people is that your money, you know, do the boring stuff first so that you can afford to do the fun stuff and not have these emotional grapplings with it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So when you're working with younger people and
1: i know you've you know written sort of extensively for a younger audience how do you pre- like let's say someone comes out of school they have school debt maybe they're starting to, to turn on their credit card debt like where do you, where do you, where do you start is it with the yeah. 401k is it with debt is it with trying
2: to buy a house you start with without thinking about money first so my yeah you didn't think I was going to say that no, did you I did So not. my first step is to take money out of the equation forget you have loans forget you have anything going on this is the fun part I want to give you the license to dream and dream big and think about what is important to you. We rush out of college into the real world. we I remember just a few weeks ago, this guy was moving into my apartment building, a young guy, and he's like, I just graduated from college on Wednesday, <laughs> and I start work on, Saturday, on Monday, and I'm like, really? You know, and so this poor man is never going to have a chance to really reflect on what he really wants. And I hope he does. But it's sort of the thing where that—that's the pace. Like everything is so fast that we forget to stop and think about what is it that I want, what's important to me. Plenty of people are telling us what we should do and how we should live our life, and our parents are influencing us, our friends are doing their thing their their, their way, and we feel like we're being pushed in all these directions. So really, just take a little bit of time write it down, keep a journal, do a vision board, whatever, put it in your phone. Where do you want to be this time next year? Start small, not like in 100 years or you know 20 years down the road or who's your, who are you going to marry. Like just where – this time next year, where am I going to be in my life? And get specific. Where am I going to be in terms of my job? Where am I going to be in terms of relationship? Where am I going to be in terms of where I'm living, saving, debt, and all the other stuff too? But have a plan that you're working towards because otherwise, yeah, we know it's not good to have debt and to get out of debt, just to get out of debt, man, that's noble, but it's not exciting. Mm-hmm. That's We know that's what we have to do, but I want it to not just be something you have to do, but something that you want to do. So give yourself that compass, that that North Star to say, okay, I'm going to – that to get excited so that then you can go back to the strategy with intention.
1: And in that strategy, how do you start to carve out sort of the blocks to get there? Let's sure. Say, and maybe let's say I don't know if it's helpful, but maybe the strategy is like find enough financial security so that you can dream big without the emotional right. wrangling.
2: So I think a couple things have to happen, and I know people in their twenties feel like I don't make enough money and I I can't save because I've got all these student loans. But you can save something. Just getting in the habit of saving is all I want you to do for now. I don't want to say you have to save a certain amount or – especially for those who feel really strapped. But that it, you are you are cognizant of the importance of saving. There's apps now like Digit is a really cool free app. I have no partnership with them. They're just this app that like you log – you sign up, they – watch how you earn and how you spend. And then every so often, every couple of days, they'll send you a text It's like, hey, Elise, I think you should save five bucks because I think that's what you can do. And $5, who doesn't have $5? So you save the $5. And then four days after that, they'll say, okay, based on your income versus your spending, we recommend $6. And it's never gonna be more than $20. It's all these nominal amounts, but they do it incrementally enough that over the course of a month, you might have $100 or more saved. And they've saved like over a billion dollars for all their users. Mm. It's the sort of thing that unless you make it automatic and you just get in some sort of cycle and ritual with it, it's not going to happen. We're not hardwired to like love to save. It's just not in you know. Yeah. Some of us maybe. So so try to get into some sort of saving practice, so that you that's kind of your oxygen mask, right? So you've got the debt over here, but. How do you avoid staying in the cycle of debt? You need some sort of cushion here, some sort of savings to help you when, for example, your bike breaks and you have to get some a new bike to get to work. That's important. That work is where you make your money. Or you, know, you have to get some new appliances or you have a medical bill, all sorts of things. Um, rather than charging the card again, pull, take it out of your emergency account. And then with regards to your debt, I would say if you've got credit card debt, that should be the priority because usually credit card debt has the higher interest rate Mm -hmm. and that's your most expensive debt. And I would say start with your highest interest rate card, pay the minimums on everything, and then a little bit extra with the card that has the higher interest rate until it's gone and then move down the, the list. Student loans are the sort of thing where there's a term there's an end date. And if you can make those monthly payments comfortably, I have people who ask me all the time, like, so I'm okay with paying my student loans, but I don't want to be in debt. And so should I put more money towards the student loans? But P.S., I don't have a 401k or an emergency fund. And I'm like, no, no, you should do the other things because, you know, you'll be out of that debt and it's not hurting your credit as long as you're paying it off as they as the schedule says you know you're basically i see that as managing the debt so that you can manage your life and the other things that are important to you but if you do have the sort of student loan debt that is really hairy and there's a lot of it and it's in different pockets and you're having a hard time keeping track then you might want to look at consolidating or working with some places that can help you manage it better maybe it's if you work in some cases, the federal loans are far more flexible than private loans, and there's more programs available to you, like income-based repayment. If you work in the public sector, sometimes there's there are forgiveness plans. So it's really about figuring out how to make it more tenable, manageable, and you know, it just it's just a matter of tapping into some resources.
1: Mm-hmm. think too, when you're young, you feel like you'll never make any more money than you're currently making. But you will. Exactly. And before we started, we were talking about women who become mothers and then are sort of weighing the benefit of their salary after taxes versus childcare and who decide to sort of opt out and how bad that is for the economy and also for these women who then maybe need to get back into the workforce. So what? how can you... How can women do a better job of setting themselves up so that that is less of an appealing option?
2: Well, just don't make it an option. Take that card off the table. Mm -hmm. It's not an option. If your goal is to stay in the workforce and pursue your career, make that the goal. And as other things evolve, as children come into the picture, partnership, et cetera, you'll figure it out. It's it's sort of the thing where once we I feel like once we entertain the, the 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 option of not working and then we do the math and we see, oh my gosh, childcare is so expensive, my job only pays so much, we play small. I think you're playing too small. You need to play big. You need to think long-term. And Now, if you're listening to this podcast and you're in your 20s or 30s and you haven't yet thought about kids, but maybe it's on the horizon, I don't know, and you don't want to not have it be on the horizon just because of your salary, then because childcare is expensive, we know that. It's really about reverse engineering it so that you can arrive at parenthood with an ability to call your own shots mm. And so what does that look like? What does that mean? I mean I remember being in my 20s and I always knew that I wanted to be a mom. I was gonna go for it and before I even knew I was like wanted to get married I just knew like I wanted to have kids but I always see moms in my office and at work that that were in some cases role models and in some cases not There were the moms who, I thought the ones who were doing it you know, well, who were fulfilled working and being moms at the same time were the ones who had had seniority, right? And they had an infrastructure at home in place so that they could go to work and not be worried about what was happening at home. They had outsourced tasks. They had a partner who was supportive and understood and like there was a lot of communication and I knew that that just wasn't going to ha- – one day I would snap my fingers and all that would happen You have to kind of learn the way. And then the most important thing I realized I had to do in my 20s was to work my tail off Mm -hmm. and to ask for more money, ask for the raises, ask the uncomfortable questions, like go into your boss's office and, and ask for that raise. Switch companies because sometimes that's the best way to make more money. Save my money. Invest my money. I bought real estate in my 20s. I wanted to be able to have a net worth that was positive before i had kids and so also seniority at work so that once kids let's say i you know let's say i got pregnant i didn't want to have to feel like i was going to walk into my boss's office all scared and nervous that i was going to be replaced because now i'm carrying and i i wanted to be able to be confident at that point in my life and i knew that money having money having career seniority and experience was going to help me. Mm-hmm. And so really just dive, dive deep into your career and also dive deep into your relationships. You know, mm-hmm. don't forget that that's also not going to just figure itself out. Yeah. You know, like in go on dates, kiss boys, kiss girls, like really, you know, figure out who you want to be, who you don't want to be. What are your non-negotiables? Because that paramount you need to, if you want to not be alone raising a child and you want to be in a partnership that person needs to understand what your goals are that you're not putting stay-at-home parenting on the table that's not a card that mm-hmm. you know you're going to figure this out so i'm I, you might be listening and some people are like but but the but the money but it's so expensive and child care and it is. It is a bit of math. You have to do the math. But I don't think that it's fair to say to yourself, "Well, I'm 32 years old. I'm a teacher. I make thirty thousand dollars a year. Daycare is thirty-one thousand dollars a year. So that's it. I'm out."
1: Mm-hmm.
2: What? What? That's terrible. You know, I feel terrible for these women who feel like that's that that is what their life comes down to mm-hmm. is one thousand dollars. And that's such a short-term perspective. And by the way, you're a teacher. You probably have a master's degree. You're experienced. Mm-hmm. Don't you think that means something? You know, you have been a teacher for all of these years, but there are other industries that will reward you handsomely for the experiences that you have, for the education that you have, for the energy that you have, for the stick to itness that you have. Explore those opportunities. I just interviewed a mom who is now the breadwinner in her family, Upper West Side, equals expensive. Four kids equals forget about it. How does she afford this? But she was a teacher and she told me a story about how she was at the grocery store in her like late 20s with two kids only at the time and her credit card got denied. And then the second credit card got denied. She's calling her husband in tears. I have to buy this food. This is the food we need to make our dinner. So give me a card. Give me a number. I got to swipe something. So fortunately, something went through. She went home and made two promises to herself. 1 I'm never going to run out of money. 2 I'm never going back to the grocery store again. And to this day none of those things have, have happened again. She took her education background, her teaching background and parlayed that into a consulting, a consultancy where now she goes in and coaches administrators and teachers all over the city, all over New York on how to enhance their educational experience for their kids. Brilliant. This was something that she kind of started as more of a side hustle to to kind of get some social proof, get confident. And then she was like, you know what? I'm just going to dive deep into this. And she did it with credit card debt, by the way. And she said even as I was in debt, I kept spending money to invest in my licensing and certification to be able to then do this. But she had a plan. You know, and and I almost like we joked, I'm like, you're, you basically have to work at a deficit sometimes to be able to get to a net positive. Mm -hmm. And, And that seems impossible. Like, no way when I have kids, I can't take those risks. But again, she thought long term. And today she has four kids, right? She's the breadwinner. She's never been back to the grocery store. Her husband does that. And I just think I, I, I love this story because it captures everything I think we've just tried to talk about, which mm-hmm. is like you have to just take that card off the table. You have to ask the hard questions. You have to make a long-term plan. And in the interim, if if sometimes, if some years you work at a deficit, so be it. Some people go into debt for other reasons. Mm-hmm. Go into debt a little bit for your career, right? right.
1: For yourself. For yourself, yeah. I remember before I had kids, my friend Missy said something to me. She said, I was like, this is crazy. You know, this is staggering. And she said, it's all liquid and you just need to, it's all liquid. And that, I found that to be true. Like just when I was like, oh my God, I'm like, it's a tidal wave, like oh. help would arrive somehow. It just felt like a. it made it easier for me to like navigate it. And the okay. other thing I would add, or two more things I would add One, we need paid family leave in this country. And we all need to, even if we already have kids, we need to be aggressively pushing for this for all the women coming up behind us because we do not have a good safety net in this country. A lot of women don't realize that there's there's no guaranteed leave, much less paid family leave, until they get into the HR office and they're told, oh, you can take 12 weeks, but it's disability, it's unpaid. And then I would also say... That I agree with you. You can't, you not only can you not put that card on the table, but I think a lot of friends of mine who have opted out have done so in part because they didn't like what they were doing.
2: Right. And so so
1: it was like that convergence. And Mm -hmm. so I think in your 20s, as you're sort of like, I don't like this, like that's the time to re architect your career and make a transition. And then I, and maybe I'm a whack, but. I feel like as I went into both of my pregnancies, I sort of doubled down on work in part, you know, and I was just having this conversation with my sister-in-law yesterday who's thinking about having a child. And she was like, I just, I don't want to go for a bigger job because of all the uncertainty. And I was like, girl, you got to like pedal to the metal. Like you go, it's three months. It's so fast. And your desire, your drive doesn't dissipate with diapers.
2: (laughs) If you've learned nothing in this half hour, <laughs> don't let your, what is it? Your your drive,
1: dri- dissipate, drive dissipate with diapers. That,
2: say that 10 times fast. That's a quote. I like um, um I also thought it was interesting. There was a New York Times piece recently about this phenomenon of women. Not really a phenomenon. I mean, I get it. It's the women, career-driven women arriving at motherhood, and they're like, WTF? Like, how much is daycare? And, and then they opt out. Unwillingly, unexpectedly, mm-hmm. and, and not just because of the economics. It's also because they found that part of some of these women arrive at marriage, defaulting to gender norms. Mm-hmm. So even if their husbands making around the same money as they are, they're the ones. The women are the ones who opt out because that's what moms do.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: okay. then what you said earlier, really, uh, you said something about, um, you know, we need family family paid family leave and which is precisely why women can't leave the workforce. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's suddenly not enough women in the workforce, it's no longer a thing. And by the way, dads need paid family leave too. So I think I mean, we need the men to also be the one of the biggest advocates for this movement. It's not a woman's issue. When women work and when women make more, everybody wins. Period. Mm-hmm. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. And I I think you had written about it on
1: your site about how women um, and I want to talk about women as as breadwinners or primary breadwinners as well, because I know that's an incredibly loaded but very common um, occurrence. Increasingly, increasingly, but that those households typically are more charitable,
2: more giving, um, mm-hmm. which I think is women of all income levels um, as a percentage of income give more than men. Hear that, ladies? And so I always say, when women make more, the world becomes a better place. And sometimes women are not interested in making more because – or not – I shouldn't say that. They're not interested in like – the making the seven figures like really leveling it up because there's an association that when you make a lot of money that you become this like powerful like terrible person perhaps that there's a lot of masculine energy around like money and wealth and being rich and powerful and like I think that that can turn some people off and it shouldn't I think that when money is in the hands of awesome people, it awesome things can happen and i think you have to consider yourself one of those people mm-hmm. that sometimes it's not even about you. Like i always try to tell people, women especially who feel like, "Oh, i'm good financially," but i say, "Okay, well, that's that's fair, but have you ever thought of the fact that if you had more money, all the people you could help." Too. So it's not just about you're comfortable, your family's comfortable, but if you are somebody who wants to make a difference, sometimes having money can be the way to do it.
0: We're going to take a quick break.
1: Travel content has always been a big part of the Goop brand. And I think it's the way a lot of people first discover us. They're planning a trip to, say, Vancouver or New York or Chiang Mai, and they come across our city guide for that destination which typically includes hotels, restaurants, bars, cafes, shops, and things to do. And depending on the place, maybe a deep dive into the best spots to get sushi or go wine tasting or learn to surf. The great perk of working at Goop is that we get to go out and test these places for our readers. So the team travels a fair amount and we've gotten to know our way around the airlines, like Cafe Pacific. Cafe Pacific is an international airline based in Hong Kong, but they fly all over. Now, Cathay Pacific goes to more than 180 different destinations in more than 40 countries and territories. If you're based in the U.S., they fly from Boston, Chicago, L.A., New York, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C. And I heard they're coming to Seattle soon this spring. They also fly out of Vancouver and Toronto, and of course London and elsewhere in Europe. From the US, Cathay Pacific has a little more than 100 flights per week going to Hong Kong and beyond, including 22 destinations in mainland China and a bunch more throughout Asia. I think a trip to Thailand sounds pretty nice right now. And so does this deal. Cathay Pacific is giving 5% off flights from the US to Hong Kong and Asia, booked between January 31st and May 31st to travel this year. It can be an economy, premium economy, or business class. Just head to kathypacific.com US and use promo code GOOP2019. One of my favorite things about podcasts, in addition to the fact that they're free to listen to, is that you can learn a lot from them, and quickly, while multitasking, which is key for me because I'm typically trying to do a couple of things at once. If you're new to podcasts, a good place to start is Spotify. They have more than 150,000 podcasts to choose from, which means there are shows for learning about pretty much anything you can think of. If you're into business like GP, Spotify has HBR IdeaCast, a podcast by the Harvard Business Review. If you want to change your perspective on your job or workplace, there's Work Life by Adam Grant. If you want to think deeply about culture, there's Still Processing, a podcast hosted by two culture writers for the New York Times, Jenna Wortham and Wesley Morris. And if you're like me and you want to explore spirituality, There's always the legendary Oprah's Super Soul Conversations. Start listening on Spotify today.
0: Now let's get back to Farnoosh and Elise.
1: I know you wrote a whole book about this, but what are some of the myths and some of the truths that sort of surround women as primary breadwinners?
2: Oh, wow. So um, I think that... Well, the biggest myth is that it's not a problem. <laughs> this is not a problem. I remember shopping my book around and we got diametrically opposed feedback from editors, from major publishers. One editor thought I was hopelessly naive to think that talking about this quote unquote issue of females being top earners in their relationships was a complexity. I don't call it a problem because I think that can get that can sound sort of like, oh, negative. Like we don't want more breadwinners, female breadwinners. Mm-hmm. I call it a complexity. It's it's layered and we don't really have the tools or the communication tactics yet. To, well, I hope. I'm working on it. I'm trying to get that, that all of that out there, but it's not mainstream yet. And then I had other editors who said, thank you for writing about this because I'm in this situation and I feel really lost at sea. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to communicate it. To my husband, I don't know how to. I, I'm emotionally conf- conflicted over this, and I know I shouldn't be because, like, come on, who? Because that's really the issue. Is that so? Society is really advanced in many ways. I mean, we've we've come to a place where women can be making more than their male spouses, but the sort of prefrontal cortex, caveman, cavewoman brain is like, again, pressuring us to revert to traditional. Gender norms. So, you know, what does it mean if I'm a woman and I make more than my husband? What does it mean for him? You know, egos get torn. And some feminists didn't want to hear that. They thought that it was an anti feminist book. You know, like I'm like, no, we're on the same team, you know. <laughs> I'm a I'm a breadwinner. I want more breadwinners, female you know, breadwinners, but I feel that we need to give the community some tools and a safe place to talk about how they feel and to be really honest about how they feel. If they're not feeling womanly because they make more than their husband, let's explore that. Mm-hmm. And if he's feeling like his ego is bruised, let's explore that. And it's not that it's her job to make him feel better, but you're in a relationship and last I checked it doesn't just fix itself <laughs> somebody has to be the first person to say something to break the ice and and so the book was written mainly for women when she makes more but my hope was that couples would read it together and that is what ended up happening in many cases but it but so the biggest myth was this is not a problem and how dare you talk about women in this way that like that this is somehow a problem i think it's more of a problem for well, complexity for for couples where maybe they didn't expect this. It was never the expectation that she would step up as the breadwinner or they're older. So they have maybe more traditional views and values as to what a marriage entails. I found that millennial younger couples were a little more with it and like hip to it. But still, I think that's easy to say. But when you're in it, it can be a little jarring. So men in particular, they're – look, it's not even just me. It's we, there was a Pew Research study not too long ago that looked at what our expectations are of marriage in this society, and a majority of people still feel it's a man's responsibility to provide well for his family. We, very, A third of Americans feel that way about women. Overwhelmingly, like two-thirds feel that way about men. So here we are, 2019. This is, this is how we feel. And maybe we're saying one thing, but we're feeling another. When we take surveys, we tell the truth. We're like, actually, you know, we kind of, the patriarchy is still very alive and well. Mm-hmm. So all this to say, I think that it's it's very fertile ground for conversation. I like to see that there are more women that are at the helm in their marriages financially, but it would behoove all of us to just be a little bit more real and honest with each other about how we feel about it, how now this is gonna what does this mean for my purpose in the relationship? if a man thinks that he's been he's he, that he should just be the provider financially and then he's not mm-hmm. well, then he's gonna have to find a new purpose, and how he does that should be something that the both of you decide upon right and um and it's incredibly common, right? it's becoming very common, so you know in the sixties it was one in six marriages. I'm sorry. Uh, Let's see. No. Six percent. Six percent. So that's less than one six. Six percent of marriages. And then now it's about a quarter of marriages. Forty percent of women are female breadwinners, and that including single moms. So but if you just look at married couples, it's about twenty five percent. And I think that's because more women are going to college than men and also graduate school. There's also the residual impact of the recession, which was often called the man session. So a lot of men lost their jobs. Women went back into the workforce. And then that kind of maybe stayed the case for families. Or he went back to work, but maybe wasn't making as much. And I also see a boom in female entrepreneurship mm-hmm. in the last five years, 10 years. That's been really exciting to, to see.
1: Yeah and I think it you know that sort of speaks to motivation and I we were talking about this before but I'm in that 25% I out earn my husband and it's always been that way and that was important to me as not I wasn't like oh my god who can I out earn um <laughs> but I in my dating life I was frequently said li- I lived in New York at the time and I was frequently set up with very preppy very waspy New York guys who were incredible earners. And they I was working in magazines at the time. I was not earning a princely amount of money, but I was supporting myself, which was very exciting. And the response was always like, oh, that's so nice. You have this walking around money. I think someone actually said Walking walking around money. It was like shoe money.
2: A man told you this?
1: Something equivalent Jeez. to that. And I was like, what the fuck? Like this is my
2: Oh, we can curse on this podcast. We can
1: curse. Like <laughs> you should have told me that 25 <laughs> minutes ago. This is my I worked so hard to be able to pay my rent. And at that point, I was like, I'm not gonna feel devalued. And I wanna I also wanted the financial support of knowing that I I needed to know that I could build wealth myself and, and support myself. So, and my husband is, I mean, you'd have to ask him, but I feel like he's pretty, he's totally okay with it, but he's also not very driven by money.
2: Same. Yeah. Same. And I mean, that's kind of the perfect combination is, you know, if you're somebody, and I, and this is, forget gender, but like if one person in the relationship is really all about, not all about, but like they, I'll be the first to admit that my sense of self-worth and you know, I feel my most my, – myself the most when I'm thriving at work mm-hmm. and and making the money. You know, I, I like – I love to be able to earn and I love to be able to earn as a result of doing something that I love. It's like – especially because, you know, I don't work for any particular person anymore. It's all kind of like I think of ideas and then if it, you know, if, if it strikes, great. So I feel a lot of pride in, in my work. My husband loves his job and his career – but he wasn't somebody who was like, I must have the corner office and mm-hmm. I must become CEO. And I think two people like that, that can be really tough. That, that's hard, especially when kids are in the picture.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, my husband is – and it's sweet in a way, but I'm, he has no concept of what things cost and he, he is not very Don't inquisitive. I know. Exactly. I'm like, yeah, whatever. Go buy your Topo Chico water <laughs> and that's his big indulgence. Uh, <laughs> loves Topo Chico water.
2: Topo Chico. Oh. Yeah. And –
1: in New York, I don't know. You're gonna have to find a special. Is that a California thing? It's it's <gasps> originally from Mexico. He goes to a special market oh. in Marina del Rey and buys a lot of topo chico. I like but... saying that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I agree. It's it doesn't seem to be a problem. it's just not his value system. Mm-hmm. But I can imagine. I think you had said earlier that when that wasn't the intention. You know, I certainly have friends who married a little bit younger than I did. Who married someone who was had was dreaming big, right? And so they were gonna be something, and that doesn't always happen. And yeah. then things reversed, and then that it's like
2: the double weight of not becoming something, right. and a lot of resentment. A lot of resentment. Lots of resentment, and that's a common emotion that we experience. And I'm also I I'm, you know this whole movement and book and everything started with me. I mean, I'm a financial Nerd, and I've been covering money for a long time. I feel very confident in talking about money and helping people, but this was the first time that I felt personally very stuck. Mm -hmm. And I and I thought, if I'm feeling this way, how could others be feeling? And uh, there wasn't when I would Google like female breadwinners. I just there was no community. There was no there were no articles. I knew that I wasn't alone, and I knew that I wasn't feeling good about it. And I really didn't like that about me. I was like, I want to be able to celebrate. I worked so hard. I, <laughs> <laughs> I worked so hard, and all that my mother can see is that I make more than my husband. And how is that going to work out? Right. So, you know, it's almost like I had to. I was embarrassed. I would go out to dinner with friends, and it was it was unusual. You know, the the the. The setup that we had. And although it wasn't an issue necessarily between the two of us, it was the, the fact that the pressures from society, the my mom, I just felt like we were doing something
0: mm-hmm. that
2: was not to be talked about. Yeah. And I didn't think that was fair. And I didn't – and I was like, if I'm – I feel like we're selling young women a false bill of goods. We're, And this I – felt, I felt like I was handed a false bill of goods. Like, go out there and get your education. Get a master's. Ask for the raise. Make more. Get the promotion. But make sure you marry somebody who doesn't make more than you.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Or makes – sorry. But make sure you marry someone who makes more than you. Otherwise, that's going to be weird. Totally. And I was like, that's so unfair. That's such a – that's – what?
1: Yeah. We had a good solve, too, early on that my friend Regina gave us because we moved in really early. And I was like, I don't want to – I don't want to – I want to go out for dinner. I don't want to make him feel awkward. It's not like something that he did a lot. And so what we did is that we stopped – we created a new bank account together and we each put in a sal- – uh, we each put in one salary or one salary per month or one paycheck per month. Oh, Sorry. wow. And so, and then we had cards you on lived it
2: on one paycheck.
1: We tried, and then I mean, I would buy my own things out of my own
2: sure. money,
1: but and 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 likewise. But then we went out for dinner, bought toilet paper. Ultimately, we lived together. We paid our rent and utilities out of that account, mm-hmm. and so it also dissipated any like, are you paying? Am I paying? Am mm-hmm. I spending? Am mm-hmm. I like paying for too much? It took that out of the equation. It was really helpful. That's so great. It, I don't know. It's never really been a persistent problem. So what – in finality, what is one – like energetically, the way that we engage with money, like what do you think is like – what's the healthy relationship?
2: Oh, yeah. So the healthy relationship is to really respect it, to know that there's more where it came from, you know, that the world is abundant, that – you have to also work at this relationship. It's not going to fix itself. It's not going to come over to you and say, hey, do you want more money? No, you have to go after it. You have to be also the biggest advocate in the relationship. Your money's not going to talk for itself. It's not going to speak up for itself. You have to speak up for it. You say, I, I'm worth it. I need more. I, I deserve more. And you can have a really healthy relationship with money. I think if you feel that you don't, you want to maybe start exploring the why. And sometimes it's about going back and down memory lane and t- thinking about how was I raised and what were some of the, the 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 roadblocks or the the messages that I got growing up that are now haunting me. And know that there are so many resources out there, that you're in this relationship with your money, but that you're part of a community. You're part of an environment. And tapping into people and resources and websites and podcasts that can help you feel supported is so important. You cannot do this alone. You shouldn't do it alone.
0: Thanks for joining Elisa's conversation with Farnoosh Tarabi. For more from Farnoosh, head to goop.com slash the podcast and farnoosh.tv. You can also tune into Farnoosh's own podcast, So Money. Thanks again for joining us on the Goop podcast. Next Tuesday, Elise is kicking off a special series on relationships that will run throughout February. Be sure to tune in. In the meantime, tap subscribe if you haven't already, and please rate, review, and share with a friend. We've got more info on goop.com slash the podcast.